0: But that was the beginning, the genesis of this Gnostic heresy and the kind of ideas that Simon Magus used to promote himself as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, which is what he did, with similar types of false teachings that we see then in the second century with people who followed in his footsteps. And so it's not surprising that even... At the end of Paul's lifetime, we find him arguing against many of the ideas that we're going to find were prevalent in the second century throughout the Roman Empire, and in particular, in eastern France, where Lyon is. Irenaeus is from Lyon. Lyon is a city in eastern France, close to Switzerland and Italy. And Irenaeus, as you see on the handout that I gave you, wrote this around 180 A.D., So this is about 30 years after Justin Martyr was writing his works that we were looking into regarding the defense of the faith against persecution, but also Justin wrote against the heretics. We don't have Justin's book against the heretics. We do have Irenaeus' book, and I'm assuming they have much the same content, much the same spirit. But this one is a generation later. And so some of the heresies that Justin was already referring to have continued to grow and spread their influence during these 30 years, particularly that of Marcion. Marcion was a new heretic when Justin was writing, and Justin took note of him but didn't pay a whole lot of attention to him. But here we're going to see that Irenaeus recognizes that Marcion is a big threat because of what he's been doing in the last 30 years to grow his movement. And so he's going to undertake to write a whole treatise, a separate treatise, just on Marcion. Now, we don't have that. We have his treatise against the heresies, where he tries to cover all of the different heresies that have grown up in the early church. But in this treatise, we'll see that he says, I'm going to write one against Marcion. He singles him out as one that he really wants to focus on. But we don't think he ever completed that book, or if he did, we don't have it. Now, Let's go ahead and read part of the preface here for Irenaeus of Lyon and his book Against Heresies, written about 150 years after Jesus Christ began his public ministry. It says this, Inasmuch as certain men have set aside the truth, and bringing lying words and vain genealogies, which, as the apostle says, minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in the faith, here, he's referring to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4. If you turn back a few pages in 1 Timothy, you can see that Irenaeus is identifying the apostle Paul as the author of 1 Timothy, which is, of course, the traditional understanding of the church. There have been some liberal theologians in modern times who have tried to say that the pastoral epistles were not written by Paul, but they were written later, and they try to build that upon the fact that many of the things that are in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy really speak very well to the heresies that the church was dealing with in the second century. And so liberal theologians say, well, they were forgeries of people in the second century to deal with the heresies that they were facing then. But when the liberals propose that, they misunderstand what I've just told you, is that Irenaeus traces the roots of all of these heresies back to the very beginning of the church with Simon Magus in Acts chapter 8. And so it's not like... Paul couldn't have been writing about these things in AD 60 or 62 or any of those time periods. So interesting to see how different people will interpret it according to their pre-understanding. But here you see Irenaeus clearly identifies the Apostle Paul as the author of the pastoral epistles, and he's going to refer to these quite a lot throughout this treatise. This Interest in lying words, these genealogies, which just raise questions rather than edifying God's people through the faith. Continue. And by means of their craftily constructed plausibilities, draw away the minds of the inexperienced and take them captive. I like that phrase that he uses there, the craftily constructed plausibilities. So a plausibility is something that seems like it could be true. And so in our day, to the liberal scholars, it seems like it could be true that Paul didn't write 1 Timothy and that it was written a century later when the church was dealing with these Gnostic heresies and they can give you, you know, well, look at this and look at this and it's, it's a craftily constructed plausibility. Well, that seems plausible. And so the craftily constructed pos- plausibilities are designed to draw away the minds of the inexperienced and take them captive. Now, Christians have a wonderful habit, speaking ironically, of sending the inexperienced off to hear about all of the craftily constructed plausibilities that the secularists have to throw at them in our world today. And I I caution you, I warn you about putting the inexperienced in with these who craft these plausibilities for their education. Now, What our goal here is as a church is to give you the tools to equip you to be able to raise your children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. We want to be able to be presenting the truth in a powerful and thoughtful manner so that it is able to withstand the craftily constructed plausibilities that false teachers in our time bring against the truth and by so doing to establish our children in the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so Irenaeus is undertaking to do just that type of thing in the second century that we are trying to do now. And so the more things change, the more they stay the same. The error is slightly different, but the method is still the same. And that's why it's useful to go back and look at the faithfulness of men in the past who defended the faith against the error so that we can take example, be encouraged, and learn from their wisdom. All right, so continuing on. We don't want the inexperienced to be taken captive. Therefore, that's what we're doing here this morning. I have felt constrained, my dear friend, to compose the following treatise in order to expose and counteract their machinations. These men falsify the oracles of God and prove themselves evil interpreters of the good word of revelation. Now, if you go and study theology at Princeton or Harvard or even the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, you'll find men who falsify the oracles of God and women, and they prove themselves to be evil interpreters of the word of revelation. So this very same thing is happening today, it's just coming from a different worldview and a different time and place, but it's still the same spirit of error that is at work in the sons of disobedience. So they also overthrow the faith of many. Well, that's happening today too, by drawing them away under a pretense of Knowledge, Ah, knowledge. We've got knowledge for you. Come and pay for our knowledge. Sit in our classes and listen to our knowledge. Watch our documentaries and get our knowledge. So they have this pretense of knowledge, what is falsely called knowledge. And it says, from him who rounded and adorned the universe. As if forsooth, they had something more excellent and sublime to reveal than that God who created the heaven and the earth and all things that are therein. So here... We've got the revelation of God. And these false teachers, uh, these who twist and distort the scriptures, they think that they have something better than what Paul wrote and what Peter wrote and what Isaiah wrote and what Moses wrote. And they want to overthrow that with their own machinations, as it says. Now, in particular, I want to point out what we talked about last week. That where it says there that they think that they have knowledge that is superior to the one who created the heaven and the earth. There, the Gnostic heresy, which many of them had in common, I'd say maybe all of them had in common, the idea that the, the God who created the earth that we live on is not the supreme God, not the highest God, not the fullness, but he's some emanation, some lesser God that came from the, the, the highest God. And so here, these Gnostics, they're adopting that worldview and teaching it as if it was a Christian teaching, and therefore they are saying they have something better to say than the one who created the heavens and the earth, who gave us the Bible as his revelation. And so many of these Gnostic heretics, they would throw out the Old Testament and say, Well, that was the word of the God who created the earth. And the God who created the earth, He's this lesser God. Maybe he has some good qualities, maybe he doesn't, but he's the God of the Jews, and and that's not what we're dealing with. That this Gnostic Christianity was really a Gentile Christianity that was expunging the Old Testament, was saying that the God who created the earth, the God of the Jews, was not the highest God, not the true God, but that the Christ Spirit came and revealed this unknown God that had not yet been revealed and that this was the secret teaching that they had, in contradistinction to this Jewish mess that the apostles and the universal church was proclaiming. All right. So, notice that, the emphasis on the God who created the earth as well. As if they had something more excellent and sublime to reveal than that God who created the heaven and the earth and all things that are therein. You want to make that very clear? created all things. By means of specious and plausible words, there's our plausible word again, they cunningly allure the simple-minded to inquire into their system. They get you curious. Like, oh, that sounds interesting, I want to learn more about this. And so you watch their program, and you read their book, and you take their class, and, and you're, you're curious. They, they draw you in with this uh, specious and plausible words that they use to cunningly allure you. But they nevertheless clumsily destroy them. So while they are clever at alluring people in, they are not clever when it comes to actually building people up in the truth, but they are clumsy in that and they destroy people when they are trying to indoctrinate them. While they initiate them into their blasphemous and impious opinions, respecting the demiurge. There is that word I think we introduced last week. It is going to be important in our study of the heresies this morning this concept of the Demiurge. Now, the concept of the Demiurge was brought into this Gnostic theology, this Gnostic philosophy, through Platonism. And it goes all the way back to Plato, that Plato had the idea that there was this workman who created the physical world that we live in. And that's what Demiurge means. It means a worksman, a craftsman. And Plato did not hold that this workman, this craftsman, was the fullness, was the essence of truth and reality and goodness and beauty and love, but that he was lesser, and that's why the physical world is imperfect. So this ancient worldview was then married to this anti-Christian movement that called itself Christian in very similar ways that non-biblical worldviews are tried to be brought in with Christianity today. Now, there's different extent to which this is done, but let me be so bold as to suggest that the fusion of biblical Christianity with secular humanism, in particular with the secular humanist understanding, their mythology, if I might be so bold as to use that word, concerning the origin of the universe that you will find many Christian teachers who have compromised the biblical teaching on a six-day creation that happened a few thousand years ago with the millions of years of evolution that does not come from the Bible, but instead comes from an atheistic philosophy, a humanist philosophy. And in so wedding those together, you come up with a system that is partly in the world and partly in the Bible, and they try to twist the scriptures in order to fit that system. Maybe we can find a way to interpret Genesis chapter 1 allegorically so that we can have our millions of years of evolution and not have to look like scientific idiots who think that the world was created just a few thousand years ago in, in a span of a week. Now, this tendency while not as extreme as the tendency of what we have here in the Gnostics, is still the same tactic of Satan. It's just more subtle. That you take a worldly philosophy and you try to import it into Scripture, and the only way to do that is by twisting Scripture. We'll see how Irenaeus shows the way that the early heretics twisted Scripture. All right? So we've got the Demiurge. And the Demiurge is this idea from Neoplatonic philosophy that has been brought into Christianity in order to allow these heretics to reject the Old Testament and to say that the God of the Old Testament is the Demiurge and not the true God who is leading us to spiritual salvation. So, simple ones are unable, even in such a matter, to distinguish between falsehood and truth. And I really like the way that he starts his second paragraph in his preface. He says, Error, indeed, is never set forth in its naked deformity. So, error doesn't come out and show you what it really is. It dresses itself up in order to look like something different than what it is. And this is why the naive are deceived, and they get interested and curious in this thing. But if error would just show up according to what it is, if it was exposed, it should at once be detected. And so that's what Irenaeus wants to do. He wants to show you the nature of the error, and so therefore you will not be drawn away by it, but you'll see it in its ugliness. In John Milton's epic poem, Paradise Lost, he tells the story of Satan's fall from heaven and then his journey to earth in order to deceive man and in order to lead mankind into sin and therefore lose the paradise that God had created for them. And when Milton introduces sin into the story, he says that the woman's sin starts fair but ends foul in many a scaly fold. And so when you're looking at error or you're looking at deceit, you don't want to look at the fair face of error and deceit, but you want to see the foul end of error and deceit. And that's key. Sin tries to look good. Sin tries to look attractive. But you have to have discernment to look past the surface and to be able to see the deformity of its naked form and expose that so that we can hate sin as it is rightly hated. All right, so he continues. It is craftily decked out in an attractive dress, so as by its outward form to make it appear to the inexperienced... Ridiculous as the expression may seem, more true than the truth itself. The, the error wants to appear more true than the truth itself. One far superior to me has well said, in reference to this point, a clever imitation in glass casts contempt, as it were, on that precious jewel, the emerald, which is most highly esteemed by some, unless it come under the eye of one able to test and expose the counterfeit. So you can make green glass and cut it like an emerald. And someone who is inexperienced might go to the marketplace and think that they're buying an emerald when really they're just buying this worthless glass that has been set forth as if it were the emerald. And this is the likeness of false teaching. With false teaching, you go into the church, it sounds like the truth, it looks like the truth, and you're like, hey, this is great. I found this wonderful, precious emerald but you don't know that it's a counterfeit. And so that's why we have to be trained to recognize counterfeit Christianity. And there's a lot of counterfeit Christianity in the world today. It's different from what they had then, but again, you see what they did then in order to recognize the same patterns happening in our time. And then he gives another illustration of the silver and the brass as well, as how things get mixed together, and you have to have discernment to be able to tell the pure form from the mixture. And so there's a a mixture of Christianity with worldly ideas in the world today. Yesterday, I was at a pastor's breakfast. All of our elders were able to attend to that. That was so good, wasn't it? And afterwards, I was able to talk with a Christian man who was from China. And he was talking about how he was in the Christian bookstore, reading this Christian book, and, and he was looking for the error. He says, you know, that when you're reading a book that is very popular among Christianity in the bookstore, you're very likely that it's popular because it has craftily mixed in something from our world and humanism into Christianity, and that blend just really entices people and draws in the inexperienced, the fleshly Christian, and and sells like crazy. And so he was praying, God, give me wisdom to be able to, to discern the error in this popular Christian book. And I really liked the spirit of this Chinese Christian man. He had a, a real fervor for the Lord and a lot of discernment. And so he also was a little bit different, a little bit unusual. So he said, I was driving and, and I had a, a license plate revelation. that the, the letters on the license plate brought to my mind the words, Glory to God. And I was like, ah, there's the difference. The mixture of Christianity is human centered it's man-centered because we live in a humanistic age. And so people who can take the message of Christianity and appeal to our selfishness, our self-centeredness, our humanism, that they can really draw a lot of interest and sell a lot of books and have a lot of people come to their seminars. And then he was thinking you know, that the key to the Bible is understanding soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. And when you see Christian ministers and Christian preachers, you can tell whether or not they're a true minister, whether or not their heart desire is glory to God. And they're always bringing glory to God because that is what is unique about this book. There's no other book, there's no other religion in the world like this one that brings glory to God at all costs. Mankind is humbled and debased, Is revealed to be the sinners and the fools that we are, and all of the glory and the honor goes to God. So that's one way you can tell the difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, is look for soli Deo gloria. All right, so then you see here that he's going to talk about how their language resembles ours. Let's pick it up after the silver and the dross. And he says there, Lest, therefore, through my neglect, some should be carried off Even as sheep are by wolves, using that biblical picture, right? The shepherd protecting the flock from the wolves. While they perceive not the true character of these men. We have to unveil their true character so that their naked deformity is repulsive. Because they outwardly are covered with sheep's clothing, against whom the Lord has enjoined us to be on our guard. And because, underline this, their language resembles ours, while their sentiments are very different. All right, same language, different meaning. Same words, but they give a different sense to those words. And that's how they draw you in. They sound like Christians. They say, oh, we love Jesus Christ. We're here to honor Jesus Christ. But then what do they mean by Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? And if they have a different Christ, well, then they have a different sentiment. They have a different sense for the word So don't be drawn in just because somebody uses the words of Christians, but see, do they have the heart? Do they have the ideas? Do they carry the same sense as what the Bible is talking about? And so here, Irenaeus being a faithful servant of the Lord and someone who loves the saints, he says, I have deemed it my duty, after reading some of their commentaries, as they call them, of the disciples of Valentinus, and after making myself acquainted with their tenets through personal discourse with some of them, "...to unfold to thee, my friend, these portentous and profound mysteries." You'll find a lot of irony in Irenaeus. That's one of the things I like about him. He actually mocks the heretics quite a lot, and he's got some skill in doing so, and I'll show you that as we continue along. So they have these portentous and profound mysteries that they're trying to draw people in with, and Irenaeus doesn't think much of these profound mysteries. He thinks they're rather silly and stupid. But he says, which do not fall within the range of every intellect. Oh, You've got to be really deep to understand this stuff. And why? Because not all have sufficiently purged their brains. Isn't that great? (laughs) And you've got to empty your head and be vacuous in your mind in order to think that this stuff is profound and deep. That it pretends to be what it is not. I do this in order that thou... Here he's writing to a fellow pastor. I do this in order that thou, obtaining an acquaintance with these things, may in turn explain them to all those with whom you are connected and exhort them to avoid such an abyss of madness and of blasphemy against Christ. I intend then, to the best of my ability, with brevity and clearness to set forth the opinions of those who are now promulgating heresy. I refer especially to the disciples of Ptolemaeus whose school may be described as a bud from that of Valentinus. So Valentinus is one of these ancient Gnostic heretics. Other people learn from him and start their own school and spread it around to different places. And so here in Lyon, the particular Gnostic that Irenaeus has to deal with and talk with is these disciples of Ptolemaeus. But he's learning about all these different heresies in his discussions with these particular Gnostics. And he's going to lay it out so that other pastors and other churches can properly be on their guard and protect their flock from this error. Now, there are five books that Irenaeus wrote on this subject. And I just gave you the preface to the five books. But here, I've got just a selection. I didn't print out everything from the first book. It's it's a pretty long book. And this is just the first book. And then I printed out just a couple of excerpts from the second book. And so... The first two books really talk about what these false teachers believe. And because there's a lot of variety among the false teachers, that they all have basically the same system, but they've got their own spin on it, it's pretty tedious to go through all of these different schools of thought and to point out, well, this group believes this, and this group believes this. and So I'm not going to go through all those details with you. I'm just going to kind of summarize what, what they all had in common and what their basic errors were. But back in that time, you had to have a handbook, and this is what this was, a handbook of heresies to say, well, this is what they teach, and this is what they teach, and so if you're interacting with this group, you know what questions to ask and where to go. But then in the third, fourth, and fifth book, he will refute them more soundly. I mean, there's a lot of refutation in the first two books, but The refutation is focused in the third and fourth books. And then the fifth book, he contrasts them with the way of the truth. And it's really more of a statement of what the early church believed and what they practiced, which is very valuable. But we're going to focus on the first book here in the time that we have left. Now, as I told you last week, the Gnostics they believed that there was the pleroma, the fullness, the highest God, whatever terminology they use, because they all use different terminology. But the basic idea was is that there's truth and wisdom and beauty and all of that in this eternal realm that he exists in, or it exists in. And that then from this pleroma, from this fullness, many spiritual beings have come, and they call them by various names, eons, eons, emanations, all that type of language of spiritual beings. And a lot of what the Gnostics would do is they'd come up with a primary Ogduid. And the word Ogduid just means a group of eight. And so they had a group of eight spiritual beings that were from this one spiritual being. and, And then they all had their mythologies about what these were and how they interacted and what they created and where everything came from. So it was a cosmology, and it was a theogony. A theogony is an explanation of where do the gods come from, uh, where does the spiritual world come from. And so they took this system, and they tried to force it into the Bible, and in so doing, they they did great injustice to biblical hermeneutics, as you might imagine. Now, before I get into some of his talk about how to properly interpret the Bible, let me uh, share a little bit about this Paragraph about some of the sins that these heretics were involved with. I think it's an interesting look into the holiness of the early church in contradistinction to the heretics. And so you don't have this. Just listen as I read parts of this book one to you. It says in chapter 6, paragraph 3, "...wherefore also it comes to pass that the most perfect among them addict themselves without fear to all those kinds of forbidden deeds of which the scriptures assure us that they who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Who said that in the Bible? Those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, that's from the Apostle Paul and it's in his letter to the Corinthians and he has a whole list of fleshly deeds there that if you do these, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, the most perfect among them addict themselves without fear to all of these types of things. For instance, They make no scruple about eating meats offered in sacrifice to idols, imagining that they can, in this way, contract no defilement. We can't be defiled by idol worship. Then again, at every heathen festival celebrated in honor of the idols, these men are the first to assemble. (laughs) They're right there, worshiping the idols, even though they call themselves Christians. And to such a pitch do they go... That some of them do not even keep away from that bloody spectacle, hateful both to God and men, in which gladiators either fight with wild beasts or singly encounter one another. Now I find interest in his statement to the gladiator games that took place there at the Colosseum and also probably in other places in ancient Rome, and that this violent, deadly sport, as the the Romans were bloodthirsty in, in their entertainment was hateful to the Christians. And the Christians did not buy tickets to go to the Colosseum and watch gladiators hack each other to pieces. That was not something that the Christians did. Interesting insight there. The New Testament doesn't reference gladiatorial games in any manner, but here you've got Irenaeus singling it out as a particularly hateful sin. I find things like that interesting. Just like when I was sharing with you the Didache, that that document singled out the practice of infanticide, the exposure of children to be eaten by wild beasts as an abominable practice of the Roman people that the Christians shunned. Christians did not expose their children and kill the infants, but instead they would try to rescue them. And so just interesting how some of the sins that were prevalent in that culture that the New Testament doesn't mention, we do have reference to in the early church fathers singling out more specific sins that you'd be curious as to what was the Christian attitude about the gladiators. And there might have been some variance of opinion, but this is a pretty good example of probably what most Christians thought about the bloody spectacle in which gladiators fight with wild beasts or with one another. Then he says this, Others of them yield themselves up to the lusts of the flesh with the utmost greediness, maintaining that carnal things should be allowed to the carnal nature, while spiritual things are provided for the spiritual. Some of them, moreover, are in the habit of defiling those women to whom they have taught the above doctrine, as has frequently been confessed by those women who have been led astray by certain of them after they return to the church, and acknowledging this along with the rest of their errors, others of them too openly and without blush have become passionately attached to certain women, seduce them away from their husbands, and contract marriages of their own with them. Others of them, again, who pretend at first to live in all modesty with them, as with sisters, have in course of time been revealed in their true colors, when the sister has been found with child by her supposed brother. And he goes on and talks about some of the sins that are characteristic of the Gnostic movement. All right, so let's talk about Bible interpretation and how this was done by the heretics and what we can learn from it today. So in chapter 8... The chapter title is, How the Valentinians Pervert the Scripture to Support Their Own Pious Opinions. Or impious opinions, but might be a better title. And it says this, Such then is their system, which neither the prophets announced, so he's, he's described their system, which I've already told you about, the demiurge, the Christ spirit, and against the Jews, and all that. Such then is their system, which neither the prophets announced, nor the Lord taught, nor the apostles delivered, but of which they boast that beyond all others, they have a perfect knowledge. They gather their views from other sources than the scriptures. So, sola scriptura. They're not into sola scriptura. They get their views from other sources, like Platonism. And to use a common proverb, they strive to weave ropes of sand while they endeavor to adapt with an air of probability to their own particular assertions, the parables of the Lord. So weaving ropes of sand, that would be pretty hard to do, right? <laughs> if you're weaving ropes together, you can do that. But if the rope is made out of sand, weaving them together is not going to be something that's possible. And that's the futility of trying to make the scriptures say what would accord with their system. It's like weaving together ropes of sand. It's a good analogy there. But they're trying to adapt an air of probability, that the parables of the Lord, the sayings of the prophets, and the words of the apostles would support their scheme, in order that their scheme may not seem altogether without support. In doing so, however, notice this, they disregard the order and the connection of the scriptures. The order and the connection of the scriptures. I'll have more to say about that. And so far as in them lies, they dismember and destroy the truth. By transferring passages and dressing them up anew and making one thing out of another, they succeed in deluding many through their wicked art in adapting the oracles of the Lord to their opinions. This is called eisegesis. We talked before about how you want to draw the meaning of Scripture out of Scripture instead of reading into Scripture your own views. So they come up with their system and their views and then they read it into scripture and will deceive people who are not familiar with the scriptures into thinking that that's what the Bible actually teaches or that's what God was actually trying to communicate through the Bible. But instead, the proper handling of God's word is to maintain its proper order instead of taking it out of order and as it says, the connection of the scriptures. And another word for connection that you have probably heard me use is context. So Understanding scripture in its own context and not taking scripture out of context, that's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. In political speech, if somebody gave an hour-long talk and you took half a sentence from the first five minutes, half a sentence from the middle of the speech, and half a sentence from the end of the speech and brought that together to make a new sentence, well, you could make that person say whatever you wanted them to say, right? Right? And that's what people say about the Bible, is you can make the Bible say whatever it is that you want to make the Bible say, only if you take it out of order and out of context, right? And that's not how you respectfully treat communication. Communication only works when you understand it in its proper context. And so if I say, Jesus Christ is not God, and you take that quote and you say, Timothy taught that Jesus Christ is not God. Well, what was the context in which I said those words? You can't wrench it from its context and make me say something that I didn't actually say. And that's what people are doing all the time when they are trying to deceive. They'll take words out of context. And unless you actually go back and search for it and say, well, what actually is the truth about it in its own context, you can be led astray. And there's a movie that just came out in theaters that's rewriting history. Uh, about an African tribe of women warriors and it's supposed to be this anti-slavery thing but if you go back and actually study the history that this tribe was involved with the slave trade and capturing and enslaving people and it's like, if you just go and watch the movie like, oh wow, how inspiring, how wonderful history Like, no, it's a lie, it's a deceit it's, it's changing things out of order taking things out of context telling you just part of it and withholding other parts that's what liars do It's not something that we should be taken in by. And so, if you don't know African history, you're like, oh, I don't know, and you can be deceived. If you don't know the Bible, you're like, oh, I don't know, and you can be deceived. And that's why you need faithful pastors, faithful historians, and faithful everything who are going to be able to teach you the truth and guard you from error. But most important is the truth of God's word, and most dangerous is those who twist and distort the scriptures out of their context and make different connections than what the apostolic writers intended when they wrote it. Now, seminaries use big words like eisegesis and exegesis and hermeneutics in order to make it sound like you have to go to seminary in order to be able to understand these things, and that's unfortunate, because you don't have to be a seminary-trained person to be able to understand how to understand words in their context. You don't have to be a political scientist in order to listen to a political speech and be able to understand what the guy is trying to say we're human beings and we understand communication. That's part of the wonderful nature that God has given to us. And so the pastor, he doesn't have any special insight or any special training. He's just someone who has read the Bible a lot and knows what it says and is able to show that when other people are trying to twist it and wrench it and say, oh, Paul said this or Peter said that, they say, no, that's not what he said. You're misusing that scripture. And not because we have any special insight or gift, just because this is our area of expertise, that we read it and study it, and that's how you become an expert in anything. Just hard work, right? You've got to study history in order to know history. You've got to study the Bible in order to know the Bible. So I wanted you to get that key idea of the importance of handling Scripture accurately, And this is something that the Bible is constantly teaching us, and here Irenaeus is giving us a good example of how the heretics destroy and dismember the truth. They do this by transferring passages and dressing them up anew and making one thing out of another, and thus they succeed in deluding many through their wicked art in adapting the oracles of the Lord to their own opinions. In like manner do these persons patch together Okay, they're patching together old wise fables. That's exactly the language that Paul uses in his pastoral epistles. And then they endeavor by violently drawing away from their proper connection words, expressions and parables whenever found to adapt the oracles of God to their baseless fictions. That's really well written, a great analysis of the methodology of heretics. And uh, he goes on and gives some more examples of that. Now, if you got your Bibles open, go with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. 2 Peter 3, 16 and 17. I'll pick it up in verse 14 to get the context, so you know I'm not wrenching it out of its proper order, right? Here, Peter is writing to the churches, he's warning them about false teachers. All of 2 Peter chapter 2 is about this. And then he's wrapping things up here at the end, and he says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, that's the new heavens and the new earth, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote you, according to the wisdom given him. As he does, here's our verses, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, There are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So scripture twisting, wrenching it out of its context, making it say something that it was not originally meant to say, that's what these untaught, these unstable heretics, they do with all of the scriptures, including Paul's letters. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, you've been warned, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. You've got to have a firm foundation for your faith and not have a mixture of worldly ideas from people who twist the scriptures that are going to make you unstable in your faith. But instead, when you have this firm foundation then you're able to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory. Soli Deo Gloria. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Now, one of the passages then that became a key battleground in the early church was John chapter 1. And you know what? The more things change, the more they stay the same. John chapter 1 is still a key battleground between the true teachers of God's word and the heretics. I have heretics who call me up on the phone. And what boldness, you know, to call the pastor and say, you know, I, want to, I have a question about the Bible. And they don't really have a question. They want to debate the deity of Jesus Christ or the deity of the Holy Spirit. And, and they've practiced and they've got their arguments and they're looking for pastors who are not prepared. And they're trying to subvert the faith of pastors. I mean, that's bold to go after the shepherd and not after the sheep. And then you carry on your discussion with them and you you find out that John chapter 1, they have a different interpretation, they have a different understanding of John chapter 1, such a a foundational chapter on who Christ is. Let's go ahead and take a look at that and then we'll save the rest of this for another look here into the early heretics next week. But in chapter 9, paragraph 2, he says this, the fallacy then of this exposition, one that's in the previous context, is manifest. For when John, proclaiming one God, the Almighty, and one Jesus Christ, the only begotten, see they had different gods and they had different Christs, by whom all things were made, declares that this was the Son of God, this the only begotten, this the former of all things, this the true light who enlighteneth every man, This the creator of the world. So this is John chapter 1, the teaching about who Jesus Christ is as the only son of God, the creator of all things. And it says this. This is he that came to his own. This is he that became flesh and dwelt among us. So all of the errors of Gnosticism are refuted in John chapter 1. So you know they have to find a way to pervert what John chapter 1 says, right? Read it differently, maybe allegorically. These men, by a plausible kind, there's our word plausible, a plausible kind of exposition, perverting these statements, maintain that there was another monogonese, not just one only begotten, there's another only begotten, according to production, whom they also style arche. They also maintain that there was another savior, and another logos, the son of monogonese, and another Christ, produced for the reestablishment of the pleroma. Thus it is that, resting from the truth, every one of the expressions which have been cited, and taking a bad advantage of the names, they have transferred them to their own systems. So that, according to them, in all these terms, John makes no mention of the Lord Jesus Christ. For if he has named the Father and Karis and Monogenes and Aletheia and Logos and Zoe, these are the Greek words of John chapter one, and Anthropos and Ecclesia. According to their hypothesis, he has, by thus speaking, referred to the primary Ogduit, that group of eight primary deities, in which there was, as of yet, no Jesus and no Christ, the teacher of John. But that the apostle did not speak concerning their conjunctions, but concerning our Lord Jesus Christ, whom he also acknowledges as the word of God, he himself has made evident, for, summing up his statements respecting the word previously mentioned by him, he further declares this, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So how are the Gnostics going to deal with that? right? So, They try to twist it, but they just can't account for everything because eventually the lie implodes upon itself. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. But according to their hypothesis, the word did not become flesh at all. Inasmuch as as he never went outside of the play Roma, but that Savior became flesh who was formed by a special dispensation out of all of the eons and was of later date than the Word. Now, we've got a few minutes left, and so I want to share with you one of his funniest critiques of the Gnostic heretics. When you come down to chapter eleven, and he's been explaining all these different groups and how they all have their own names for the primary Ogdoid. And some will have you know this person or this word being in there and others have substituted different words. And it's very tedious to have to deal with all of that. And so he decides that he's going to help out the heretics and create his own system of Gnosticism with his own names. Since they can all make up their names and I can also make up whatever names I want to make up with thick irony. And so he says this, Let's look at the inconsistent opinions of those heretics, for there are some two or three of them. How they do not agree in treating the same points, but alike in things and names set forth opinions mutually discordant. The first of them, Valentinus, who adapted the principles of the heresy called Gnostic to the peculiar character of his own school, taught as follows. And he goes on and talks about the proarch and all of this type of thing. And he says, But if that's true then nothing hinders someone else in dealing with the same subject to give whatever names he wants, and so I propose the following. He says, There is a certain proarch. Proarch means first ruler. There's a certain proarch, royal, surpassing all thought, a power existing before every other substance and extended into space in every direction. But along with it, there exists a power which I shall term a gourd, And along with this gourd, there exists a power which, again, I will term utter emptiness. Now, this gourd and utter emptiness, since they are one, produced, and yet did not simply produce as to be apart from themselves, see how it tries to sound deep and profound, they produced, but not so as to be apart from themselves, a fruit, everywhere visible, eatable, and delicious, which fruit language calls a cucumber. Along with this cucumber exists a power of the same essence, which again I call a melon. These powers, the gourd, utter emptiness, the cucumber, and the melon, brought forth the remaining multitude of the delicious melons of Valentinus. For it is fitting that the language which is used respecting the universe be transformed to the primary tetrad. And if anyone may assign names at his pleasure... Who shall prevent us from adopting these names as being much more credible than the others, as well as in general use and understood by all? So, I love the mockery that he has here for the supposed wisdom of the ancient heretics in, in coming up with how all the worlds were formed by this primary Ogduid. And so you can read their writings and be overawed by their deep spiritual insight into the nature of reality and heavenly beings, But it's all just a bunch of malarkey, and it's tedious to deal with. But that's what the early church had to deal with. And so we learn from their example. We learn how to be faithful. We learn how to be true. We learn how to love people by speaking the truth in love, how to be skillful in understanding Scripture in its own context, not taking the ideas of men and forcing them into the Scripture or forming some kind of fusion of Christian thought and the world of thought that is secular or atheistic Let us be like Irenaeus and guard the deposit that was entrusted to us as Paul urged Timothy a century earlier.